Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we continue with the broadcast of Flesh, the Law and Black Humanity that Ayan started on the program last week. Firstly, Flesh, the Law and Black Humanity was an event hosted in Melbourne, Victoria by the Loving Feminist Literature group and particularly by Nilmini Fernando, a Sri Lankan-born woman living in Australia. According to the event description, Flesh, the Law and Black Humanity aims to stand outside of white Western colonial frames to discuss theorise and address the outcast locations of the intellect, literature, art and bodies of first people, raced and gendered others in the settler colony. Last week, we introduced you to the panellists and I'll remind you of who they are today. Claire G. Coleman is a writer from Western Australia. She identifies with the South Coast Noongar people. Her family are associated with the area around Ravensthorpe and Hopetown. And the second panellist is Timmer Ball. She's a non-fiction writer whose work is influenced by working across urban planning, zine making and other creative forms. She grew up in Birurungar in Melbourne, but her heritage is Baladong Noongar from Western Australia on her mother's side. We pick up the conversation with the discussion on post-colonialism and what it is even. And this is where Claire G. Coleman kicks off. Well, I just think it's, it's interesting that people in colonised countries all around the world, they have this a genre called post-colonial studies or post-colonial literature. It'd be really great to have that here, except we're not post-colonial yet. <laughs> uh, it, it, just, we are still colonised. The colony is still operating exactly the same way as it always has. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to be post-colonial and, and study post-colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be fantastic? But... And like, just talking about cl- um, uh, closing the gap, I, I wrote a piece for the Saturday paper on the 10-year closing the gap report. The official government report, if you look at the summary, it says that they're on track for five of the 10 aims for closing the gap and um, had succeeded, partially succeeded two and the other three they hadn't done anything. But if you look at the actual numbers, they had no improvement of, in any of them. They'd actually, because I, I went back to the original numbers in the in the raw data and looked at what they actually discovered and they had not actually closed any of the gaps. So there's this massive government funding of, um, like I think there's billions of dollars involved in closing the gap to not do anything. The only things that had improved, the only one they had actually partially closed was the gap of specifically percentage of children at school. And the government hadn't done that because they hadn't put any money into that. The Aboriginal communities had done that. So the only one that it was actually closing, we'd done ourselves. All that government money goes nowhere. And you often hear about this concept of the $30 billion spent on Aboriginal affairs every year. Um, so far, people have assessed that money, and 20, at least $29 billion of that goes to white organisations for their administration costs. And it just doesn't get to actually do anything. None of it does anything. So I think we need to, um, we need to stop thinking that the government's even trying to do anything to fix any of our problems. That's just amazing, both um, Tim and Claire, to say that because I think that leads us on into thinking about the value of the commodification of black bodies. And that I, I don't know if anyone knows Arundhati Roy, 
the um, Indian um, feminist and eco warrior, she said there's a lot of money in poverty. There's a lot of money in race. So, yes. And I think that what Timur was talking, and there is a whole thing called racial capitalism, which I'm just reading this amazing book on. But reading books is like... <laughs> but as Timur was saying, that, that idea that we're being cynical, the idea that we're being there's something wrong with us, instead let's flip that around and let's talk about how we need to be politically savvy. You know, we are naive. There is so much naivety going on, and I would love, in a way, this getting everyone together like this is a way of just thinking, can we just get rid of that and stand here and see that as complete naivety and the truth and always, always follow the money um, because there's so much money and actually I know there's some people from academia here as well, maybe later on you can tell us, but if you look at all the Indigenous um, scholarship units, the heads of units, the principal investigators, all of those are white people and actually when you're sitting on the committee, a friend of mine sits on the committee of going through those papers, the applications and all it takes for a PI Principal investigator to say that they have connection with communities, you know, it's literally throwing a few dot paintings in or saying the word yarning as a methodology, and they think that's enough to get in, and it is. <laughs> it's, it's that bad, is what we're saying, right? Um, Timur, would you like to, could you tell us a little bit more about, you write about um, the, the built landscape, you, you, and could you write about could you talk a little bit about your work and how you bring the past and present into the future? I think that's another theme, that the future isn't somewhere else. It's actually right, right here, and we just need to look at it in a certain way and talk a bit about feminists, feminist scholarship. Cool. And um, small ask. Uh, yeah, I think the built environment is just so sort of disturbingly fascinating, if that's appropriate. I think the thing that's really challenging as more and more Aboriginal practitioners enter architecture, design, built environment professions in parallel to this kind of diversity or Aboriginal capitalism in terms of every architecture, design firm, university architecture, academic um, faculty wanting to do all this sort of Aboriginal placemaking, Aboriginal knowledge in architecture. Um, is the fact that no one's actually sort of really confronting the deep-seated reality of architecture in cities on stolen land and that architecture is the most brilliant form of colonisation. If you want to colonise a place, build a city over it. Like, that's, wow. mm -hmm. that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And so it's suddenly we're grappling with this new space of Indigenous design, Curry Heritage Trust did a really fantastic exhibition on Black Design Matters, it was on last year. And it's sort of just everywhere, but it's almost like you're not allowed to speak the truth of the fact that mm. architecture, built environment, urban planning, all of these industries is the most explicit, is the most violent way to colonise a country. When we think of colonisation, we obviously also think of the enormous, hideous genocide and death of people, but for the ongoing survivors, it's the erasure of your previous landscape and the fact that you're now living in a new built-form landscape. And I feel like um, it's just a really interesting point in time that no one actually wants to talk to the depth of the coloniality of the industry and the fact that 
We've got to get really excited about the fact that we're doing new projects and we're going to engage an Aboriginal artist to do some landscape design at the front of the building. It's like, yeah, but you would never in any way deeply analyse who gets preference to use the building, particularly if it's housing, let alone the fact that the building is being built on stolen land. So do you give some sort of reparation for the traditional owners of that land, which then kind of connects into native title? sort of planning and property law. So it's just, yeah, it sort of almost feels like this kind of, um, yeah, very sort of surface fake interest and very complex space to be working in because ideally you want people to be thinking critically about the industry, but I think as an industry, not even as an industry, because of Australia as a nationhood doesn't want to deal with coloniality, it means it's very challenging for the industry to also kind of confront stolen land and moving towards some sort of reparation. Because, you know, we have all these things, we have like development contribution plans and all these technicalities where developers have to give money to councils to build open space for the privilege of getting that land to build housing. So, you know, if we can build all these things, logically we can also build in some sort of reparation system but because we're not able to really explicitly confront living on stolen land. Yeah. Um, to just quickly weave in a sort of a feminist analysis, what I think is also deeply challenging um, and to just sort of, I guess, to sort of continue and acknowledge um, Annie Annette's really quite powerful and horrifically just sad um, but very truthful acknowledgement is I think in unfortunately sort of in the architecture sort of built environment industries the only Aboriginal people who are getting into leadership roles are cis heterosexual Aboriginal men. I've never met an Aboriginal person who isn't a cis heterosexual man in a senior role. Like there's a couple of Aboriginal women who are have either finished PhDs or kind of finished them, finishing them, but very much struggling in academia. And yeah, we often get together and just bitch about Aboriginal <laughs> men in senior roles in architecture who don't have our back. And are very much, they've just, unfortunately, they've really been colonized. Mm. Something about sort of straight cis male Aboriginal men who get colonized the fastest or something it's mm. because the you know it's male privilege they get to leadership positions mm. quicker than any of us and and I mean also it's like you know power corrupts and but yeah definitely that's a whole other thing and it's really complicated too because it's a small sector of people so to sort of try to really do some massive <laughs> critique of Aboriginal men in power mm. you know that's not exactly that's hard for you to do that mm. Mm. as well yeah. Well, the, um, the, the built environment makes me think of two things in particular. One is a kind of... W whenever you're arguing with... Um, well, let's, put, let's just be frank here. Whenever you're arguing with annoying white people about, <laughs> about country, they'll say, why don't all the Aboriginal people go back to, their, go back to country or go back to their communities? But what about the people whose community was here? Right here, right, right where we are now. Not only is there a city on their place, but all their land's been dug up and taken away and got, had concrete put on top of mm -hmm. it. And it's their home. And now their, their, 
ancestral environment is a 100% urban environment. That's not good for the... Um, it's, if, that's not respect for country. It's just destroyed. That's, that's the first thing that always occurs to me. Because everyone thinks of Aboriginal people as being people in the Western Desert or in Arnhem Land. They don't think of Aboriginal people like Tim and I, who our ancestral countries are probably about 200 kilometres from each other. Yeah. About that. Um, so you, you, don't, you don't think of it that way. And the other thing that, that bothers me about the built environment, there's a particular type of built environment called a road. <laughs> right? They're built. They're designed, they're built, they're planned. And there's a, right now, while we're sitting here talking about this, there's people camped in Japan country trying to stop people to, who are trying to move a road to save three minutes on the trip to Adelaide. It's a 750-kilometre um, drive that takes around, a pro if you're driving, not driving like an idiot, around eight hours. Three minutes I want to save. And they're going to destroy ancestral country and chop down um, ancient birthing trees to save three minutes from eight hours. Or more than eight, like about eight hours. So that's, if you think about the... the um, the kind of the thinking that considers um, essentially white people's convenience as more important than average people's ancestral land. Not even white people's survival, but just convenience. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. They could they said they need to widen the road, but they can widen the road where it is. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about widening and moving the road for no good reason. I think that's just encapsulates so much of the idea of the law, because we're talking about laws, treaties, that actually if there's nothing intentional behind them, um, like what I see very much is, I, I don't know if you know the work, like of, uh, I think it's Charles, who says racial hallucination, Anastasia, okay, that whiteness is a hallucination. It's actually like a, a, a complete imagined fictional thing, and I think race and gender are two fictions, twin fictions that were bought, birthed through colonialism, they weren't there before in the way they are now as structures. So these are, I mean, the main point being that it's going on right now. And I think that if, depending on your location, like if you look at, I located myself as a, as a settler of colour. Um, if you're a white person and you've never had to live anywhere else, never had your land taken, never been in a war, never been dispossessed, never been having nowhere else to ever go back to, even though you're told to go back <laughs> to where you came from, and that's not a possibility, those things aren't in your face, so it can be very abstract. So I think it's the, the point about being, whose stories are we listening to and how. You know, so we'll go on to that a little bit later, because I'd like you to contribute to this discussion towards the end of it. But um, we were talking about how you write that back, all right? So it's almost like, how do you write the wrongs in your writing? Um, so Claire, you could perhaps talk about your characters and your um, the futuristic, you know, some of the lives that you show your characters living. There's one particular bit that I just love in your new book. Um, it's about, it's a, I think we talk about rights, we talk about laws, but do we talk about freedom? You know, what does it feel to be free, even just for a moment or whatever? And this line, uh, in dream, for a time is freedom. It's from Claire's new book, The Old Lie. The rain would never know it would bring no life here landing on concrete on a place swept dead. It would disappear into drains when it wanted to become a river. It would flow away when it desired to feed life. Well, my characters live a life 
pretty much every bit as bleak as we're living right now. Let's, let's face it. People say my, my novels are bleak. Well, you know what? Our world is bleak. People say I write dystopias. We live in a dystopia. And it, but on the other hand, I would like to be hopeful. And I, I think there's a, you know, Tema said before that she's pessimistic. But I'm, what I am is I'm pessimistic but hopeful. And what I hope is that by turning every problem on its head, because I think if with every thing, every opinion people have, there's a crack in it somewhere. In every opinion, every belief, every thought, there's a crack. And what you do is you turn it around. I can't do it properly because my arm's broken, but you turn it around <laughs> until you find the crack. Then you stick a wedge in it and hit it with a hammer. <laughs> so what, so, but what you've got to do is you've got to find the gap. You've got to find where someone's... Thinking about someone's answer to a question does not hold up to their own logic, where it breaks their, even breaks their own rules. Because you think about, um, I've, I think a lot about the concept of internal consistency. Because as a writer, that's very important. Every story has to be internal, internally consistent. You can't break your own rules or your story doesn't work. And it's, it's the same with the, with the rhetoric that we're fighting, the, the terrible opinions that some people have they don't often hold up to their own arguments. If you turn their own arguments on them, they, they fall apart. So you just got to find the right place to stick a wedge and bigger, get a big enough hammer, and eventually you'll smash it. Unfortunately, it's hard to do it um, in, a, in on mass. I mean, we can do it sitting in a, in a circle like this. We can give you some ideas that might crack a wedge in your thinking. One-on-one um, -on -one works, but that's terrible when you're trying to um, manipulate single people because it takes a very long time to change people. So I put it in books. And I let people do it to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, find a, I find a crack in, in society I can put in, in the rhetoric of the society we live in and put a wedge in it and then give the, my readers the hammer. Yeah. And um, so what I'm trying to do is I'm not trying to imagine a better world. I'm trying to show people the world we already live in. That's absolutely fantastic because I was thinking about that the wedge and the hammer. It's like self. It's about self-reflection. The solution isn't outside yourself. It's actually how we can think differently and see the same thing, read it, and literacy. We talk about racial literacy. And to, the, uh, to be literate, we need other language and we need broader thinking and we don't need to be closed down into the colonial forms of thinking, which is what power does to you. So I love that idea, and I was actually, when you were talking about the wedge, you know, what is the, th what is the hammer made out of, perhaps? Um, what, what's the hammer made out of? What will break up, what will break that open? So maybe you could be thinking about that. What would your hammer be What would to break you? I was just going to go on to Tima, because one thing I love about, uh, we, Tima and I, we co-founded Loving Feminist Literature with Valeska here and Tanya and a few other women of colour, and Zai, and we were just like, literally, we had books in our handbags. And we just, I carry these books with me. It's like, that would be my hammer, the books that I carry. They are kind of my life force, you know? And the book isn't just the written book. It's the meaning behind it. Sometimes, like, I'll just think, just having it on my shelf. So we're talking here about words just floating around and going into your body. They don't have to be read even. Like, so that's the kind of feeling we need to get into. And I know this because I do, I'm a Buddhist practitioner. And I could be reading the Buddhist teachings that are so beautiful to read, but when you do your meditation practice and you read the same teaching, you get a different meaning from it. 
which you cannot get unless you have done the practice. Does that make sense? So I feel like I, I call myself a feminist, but actually I couldn't do it without Buddhism. Um, and as a feminist, one of the things I love about Timmer's work is her citational politics. She brings everybody with her. She brings the whole canon with her. And she brings it into the buildings that she's writing about. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that, Timma. Um, and just to say that some people think when you are doing this citational politics, it's, it conquers the white feminist way of thinking, I thought of that. That was my idea. I am now going to start a, a consultancy <laughs> you know, with that idea. Sorry, Timma. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting that you bring that up. I've never really heard of just the the phrase citational politics, okay. but that's really cool. Like, I really like it. Um, for me, I feel that, and I think it's something very much within Aboriginal sort of writing kind of community and peoples is, I don't know, for me, I feel that, yeah, everything I'm really inspired by is very much based on the work of Aboriginal pe people that I've read. And I think, yeah, I mean, I feel like I can't really write without thinking about who else has written mm. about this, mm. particularly mm. Aboriginal women, mm. non-binary, trans people. Um, it seems, I don't know, and I think it's also just nice. I think one of the things that's, well, not nice, just really important, is that we're in this quite uniquely strange and also, yeah, I'm going to say positive um, kind of era or landscape where increasingly there are so many more Aboriginal writers doing really well. Like, yeah, like it's amazing. Claire's got all these incredible books and there's just been so many great Aboriginal novels, non-fiction work come out poetry collection just this year alone but I think for some people they might sort of naively think that it just sort of happened in the last few years but there's just mm. so many incredible Aboriginal writers that for whatever reason don't always get acknowledged and I think it's really important to um, particularly yeah just to really acknowledge the sort of elders in the writing community, <coughs> Aboriginal writers who don't seem to get <coughs> hyped up as much and to make people aware that this kind of um, yeah, I think Alison Whitaker wrote a piece in The Guardian talking about the Aboriginal Renaissance um, that's how she described it which is fair enough, there are just so many Aboriginal writers doing well in the last few years in particular but to not kind of think that there weren't so many Aboriginal writers before this renaissance. I think that's really, really important yeah. to sort yeah. of think about that as well. And also just the sort of sense, which I think, I think you did that amazing event with Alison. Um, was it the, the F word lecture or something yeah. at the Willis Centre? And she was really talking about the fact mm. that the industry gravitates to a certain type yeah. of Aboriginal writer mm. because, you know, the gatekeepers are still the overwhelmingly white lit industry. So I think it's really important if you're someone who benefits from what the industry is interested in to sort of kind of, yeah, to kind of really acknowledge and sort of speak back to them by kind of saying, well, 
why are you selecting who, who you're selecting and just to sort of be aware, that constant awareness that this kind of Aboriginal writing thing didn't just come out of yeah. nowhere. Yeah. There were storytellers yeah. forever. Yeah. And yeah, to me it's just really important. But I do, I really like this term, citational politics. Yeah. Really yes, awesome. new language. Yeah. Thank you, Timma. You were listening to an excerpt from the panel event Flesh, the Law and Black Humanity, organised by Loving Feminist Literature. The facilitator was Neil Minnie Fernando and the panellists were Claire G. Coleman and Timmer Ball. And that's all we've got time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.